0: If you'll bow your heads as we pray. Heavenly Father, again we thank you for this day where we can come together as your church to worship you and to hear your word proclaimed. We pray here today that you'd be glorified in the things that are uh, preached, and that the church would be edified, and that anything that is uh, said or done or taught here that is an error or diminishes your glory in any way we pray that it would be forgotten and would not harm your church and that we'd see it and repent of it when we can we pray all this in the name of your son Jesus our God and King amen you'll open your pew bibles to page 1181 I'll be reading 2 Timothy chapter 1 verses 13 and 14, which is our text for today. Verses 13 and 14 of chapter 1 of 2 Timothy. <clears throat> Paul has this to say to Timothy. Follow the pattern of, of the sound words that you've heard from me in the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. By the Holy Spirit who dwells within us, guard that good deposit entrusted to you. In the 1850s, mid-1800s, there was a, an, a man, a famous man, named Charles Augustus Briggs. He was, for a long time, a Presbyterian. And he was a popular teacher, a popular uh, Hebraist. That's a fancy term for somebody who geeks out on the Hebrew language. He wrote a really useful Or he helped to write a really useful lexicon, the Brown Briggs and Driver lexicon. I have a copy of it. But this guy is famous, or more, I should say, infamous, because even though he's a Presbyterian, he's really an enemy of the gospel. In he became professor at Union Theological Seminary. And in his inaugural lecture, he proceeded to talk as a minister about how there is nothing divine about God's word. Not one letter, not one period, not one sentence. The whole book is devoid of the divine and simply, simply a product of human ingenuity. A seeking for something beyond themselves. So he denied this that the scriptures were God's word. A very serious thing. Years before this, he wrote a a book which explained his position, which he echoes in this inaugural lecture I mentioned, and we'll be talking about in a moment. But this inaugural lecture that he did led to a heresy trial, a long and arduous one where uh, he tried to employ the standard tricks of the devil and most theological liberals. He tried to use the procedures of Presbytery to get out of trouble. Oh, I'm sorry, I went too far, I didn't really mean it. And then he pivoted and said that the charges weren't filed right and all these other things. These things didn't work, and he was eventually defrocked and kicked out of the PCUSA. Unfortunately, a few years later, he worked his way into the Episcopal Church and became an Episcopal priest and carried on his heresy and his evil. He ended up dying in 1913, a year before the Great War. Why does this matter? Why am I talking about this awful man and his awful thoughts from over 100 years ago? He died more than 100 years ago, 110 years ago. Well, it matters because this man is bringing up what the devil said in the garden. When he would talk about religion, his ploy was, hath God really said? Did God really say? He's questioning God's word. <clears throat> and he's, he's also bringing to question whether or not we should have the confessions that we have. And he does sly things like this. He he says this in the book that I mentioned, called "Whither," on the which direction should Presbyterians go. Presbyterian churches have departed from their standards on this question of uh, whether babies go to hell if they die in infancy. So they departed from their standards, and it is simply honest to acknowledge it. We are at liberty to amend the confessions, but we have no right to distort it and to pervert it, its grammar and historical meaning. Now note, he says this, and then he proceeds to pervert its historical meaning in the rest of the book. He's a liar. But Briggs puts forth this idea of orthodoxy, orthodoxism, that which is held from the past, and contrasts it with the new masculine orthodoxy, which takes God's word alongside of science and psychology and history and other things. Why is this important today? And why am I talking about it? Because this idea is not dead. He is dead. And he has had the answer to his creator for this. But his ideas are still very much alive. And they affect all kinds of things. How we view our confessions, how we view the Bible. And so here's what we need to take away from this and our text today you are to cling firmly to the doctrines of Christ and remain faithful to it. Briggs didn't. He didn't cling firmly to that which he had received. So our main point of the text is, you are to cling firmly, brothers and sisters, to the doctrines of Christ and remain faithful to it. Paul divides our text into three points, three positions. Cling firmly to the doctrines of Christ. The first part of verse 13. Cling firmly to the doctrines of Christ. The second point is is that the doctrines of Christ are found in scripture. The doctrines of Christ are found in scripture. And the last point is, is that we are to guard the doctrines of Christ empowered by the Holy Spirit. We are to guard the doctrines of Christ empowered by the Holy Spirit. So in the, the first position, and I'm going to read this, uh, I'm going to read our text again, but from the King James and the New Living Translation, just the King James or the uh, ESV, the beginning of this, our, our text, I, I think kind of soften the blow. I, I really want us to get a, a tangible grasp of what Paul is saying here. So in 2 Timothy 1, 13 and 14 from the King James, Hold fast to the form of sound words which thou hast heard of me in faith and in love which is in Christ Jesus. That good thing which was committed unto thee keep by the Holy Ghost which dwelleth in us. And then again, in the New Living Translation, hold on to the pattern of wholesome teaching you learned from me. A pattern shaped by the faith and love that you have in Christ. Through the power of the Holy Spirit who lives within us, carefully guard the precious truth that has been entrusted to you. So we're going to focus on the, the first section here. Hold fast to the form of sound words or follow the pattern of sound words. So follow does not get get the oomph that Paul means here. The Greek word here really is talking about we need to hold on to, hold on tightly. That's why I like that in this particular verse, the way King James translates it. And the New Living Translation does an okay job too, is holding on. to, hold fast. It's an unusual phrase. But it means to keep. To retain, to hold on to, to maintain—a uh, a good way to, to, to visualize this is if, if you've, you're familiar with the movie *Master and Commander* or the books. There's a scene where uh, a, t- a ten or twelve-year-old boy is an officer, and they just—they're enga- getting ready to engage the uh, French warship *Akron*, and this is a British warship, and this is during the Napoleonic War. So they're coming at each other, and they exchange cannon shot. Wood chips fly everywhere. The little boy's terrified, and he looks over, and as the explosions are going on, lo and behold, he sees this sailor holding onto a rope very tightly. You could say he has a death grip. And tattooed on his fingers, and his knuckles, hold fast. And he's telling the boy, hold fast. Why does the boy need to hold fast? Because these explosions can blow him off the ship. So what is Paul getting at here? We're to have a death grip on what he's about to talk about. A death grip. So hold fast. Death grip on the form of sound words or the pattern of sound words. That is what Paul wants us to do. So, what is this pattern? What is this form of sound words? It's an important word. In the Greek, this is actually the first word in the sentence. Paul's putting, so you don't necessarily have to worry about word order for translation necessarily in Greek. However, word order shows importance. So, Paul's putting all the importance of verse 13 on. The form or pattern. So, why does this matter? Well, this word, this this, this word for form or pattern, all right, uh, it's really talking about giving an something like an outline, a sketch, a brief or a summary, even a short exposition. You could say. In. Um, In the ancient Greek world, artists would use this for the initial sketch that they would do. So they would take a pencil on marble, and a sculptor would draw where he was imagining taking the chisel strikes. So he's giving an an initial appearance of what he's trying to do. Uh, For our sake, we could look at it like this. We're soldiers. In general, and a general's before us drawing in the dirt. And he's drawing our battle plans. So he's got a pine cone here. It means something. A stick that's here. Those aren't the actual things, but it's a submarine of what we're about to do. It's a map pointing us in the direction of where we're to go. So it's, it's a mock-up of the big picture. So you could say it's like going through a 101 course where you fly over and get a general idea. Then you take your 404 course in college later on, which is a more advanced class, and then you kind of fill in the gaps, but it's because you had the earlier course, the earlier form or pattern that you were able to take the advanced course. What's this pattern or outline? What is it of? It can mean many things. Hold fast to the form of sound words. Well, the good or the Geneva Bible translates this as wholesome words. And it kind of implies that they're also unsound. So sound words, unsound words. In 2 Peter 3, we have an example of unsound words. Even as our beloved brother Paul, also according to the wisdom given unto him, hath written unto you, as also in all his epistles, speaking in them of these things, in which are some things hard to be understood, which they that are unlearned and unstable twist, as they do also the other scriptures, unto their own destruction. There's an example of unsound words. But what's the sound words that he's talking about? Well, he's talking about doctrine. He's talking about about the things that Paul has previously taught Timothy. So it's, it's a justification here, and it's actually a command, that Christians, as well as Timothy... Uh, either hold to or create creeds and confessions. So we have the Westminster Standards. The ancient church had the Apostles' Creed, the Nicene Creed, the Athanasian Creed. There are numerous creeds where we give small summaries, usually addressing a problem, to defend and to declare what our faith is. And it's usually derived from Scripture. So the ancient Jews did this as well. They had had very many creeds for dealing with various issues. The ancient church did as well. These statements, these teachings, are usually written in plain language or spoken of in plain language, and they're easily understood. You actually get a, a numerous number of them. There are many of them throughout Scripture. Our Old Testament text is one. Another one is in First Timothy 3.16, which is great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. Now here are the plain language points. He was manifest in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, and taken up in glory. So you have six points talking about something that's essential to the faith. So let me ask you this. The ancients used creeds, both the Old Testament church and the ancient New Testament church. Our Reformation fathers made use of creeds and held on to creeds. They used them as a defense against Roman Catholics, against heresy. They used them to teach. Let me ask you this. Do you make use of the creeds? God's commanded us to make creeds. And they're useful for our, our instruction in the faith. Have you clinged to what you've received here in church? In Sunday school, we need to make sure that we're paying attention to sermons. A sermon is a pattern of sound words in a different way, slightly different way, but it is an exposition of Scripture. So, ministers are to teach and preach faithfully. Do we listen? Do you listen? God gave us these tools, and we need to hold fast to them. So, we're to hold fast to the form of sound words. Which thou hast heard of me in faith and love, which is in Christ Jesus, that good thing which was committed unto thee. So the second point, the doctrines of Christ are found in Scripture. There's a lot of confusion regarding uh, this passage coming from various traditions. But Paul here confirms that it's his instruction. Because it's that which thou hast heard of me. So these are the things that Timothy himself has been personally instructed in. This isn't Pharisaical Midrash. Pharisaical Midrash is... uh, collection of sayings of the rabbis okay uh, it's not Talmud which is also a collection of writings of the rabbis going all the way back to Babylon into the middle of uh, the 8th century that the Jews use uh, with John 21 this pa- our passage today is used by Roman Catholics and others to indicate that there's a lot more to church authority than God's word in John 21 it says this and there are many there are also many other things which Jesus did the which if they should be written every one I suppose that even the world itself could not contain the books that should be written <clears throat> so holding fast to the form of sound words which Paul instructed and the fact that John admits that all the things that Jesus has done in his life couldn't be contained in all the books of the world, these two instances are used by Roman Catholics to defend their use of tradition. It's an abuse. It's an abuse by the Roman Catholics. And in the, Our passage today is used in their Catholic catechism. The Catholic catechism says this, the apostles entrusted the sacred deposit of the faith, that is the depositum fidei, contained in the sacred scriptures, and tradition to the whole church. And tradition to the whole church. Liberals abuse these types of passages in a similar way, but to simply undermine scripture. evangelicals today are now abusing God's Word and focusing on things outside of His Word and doing the same thing that the liberals and the Roman Catholics are doing, but they're trying to be faithful evangelicals. Andy Stanley, for example, says this, "...the Christian faith does not rise and fall on the accuracy of the 66 ancient documents." That's the ancient, that's the Bible. 66 books of the Bible. 27 books of the New Testament, the 39 books of the Old Testament. It doesn't matter. We know the historical Jesus. How do you get that without God's word? It rises and falls on the identity of a single individual, Jesus of Nazareth. Now how crazy is that? You just undermine all the documented evidence that we have for Christ. And now you're telling us we have to rely on him. It's nonsensical. The doctrine of Christ are found in Scripture. How do we know this? We know this through the rest of Paul's writing. In 2 Timothy, our current document, the epistle we're in, just two chapters later, In 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17, all Scripture is given by the inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be perfect, that is, properly equipped, thoroughly furnished unto all good works. Paul continuously emphasizes the Word of God. And for some of our evangelical brothers in Christ who downplay the Old Testament, other places in these letters to Timothy, Paul praises Timothy's mother and grandmother for immersing him in God's Word as a child. So Timothy's my age by the time he's getting this letter. He's in his late 30s, early 40s. So this is, as a child, that would be 30 years ago. So The Gospels weren't written. The Epistles weren't written at this time. He would have been a child at around the time of Christ. So what's he getting? What's he nursing on as a child? The Old Testament. So the Word of God is emphasized here. These are summaries and confessions and creeds that have been derived from God's Word. Deuteronomy 6.4 as an example from the Old Testament. Hear, O Israel, the Lord that is Yahweh is our God and Yahweh alone. These are little snippet creeds that are memorable, plain language. Things that we're to hold on to to have a death grip on. So moving on. Hold on to the pattern or form of sound words, which thou hast heard of me, in faith and in love, which is in Christ Jesus. So this isn't in faith and in love. This refers not to uh, something that's being added to Christian doctrine, the doctrines of Christ. But this is something that is united to doctrines of Christ. Any atheist can read the Bible and tell you what John thought of Christ. He can write you out a theological statement telling you all the things that John thought about Jesus. And he will say it's a fact that John thought this. But he won't have the faith and the love of God that is associated with it. Knowledge is not what's being talked about here. Holding on to the doctrines of Christ is an act of faith. Because it all points us to faith in Christ. Faith in Christ. It points us to the love of Christ. So, who is the beginning and source of our doctrine? It's Christ. That's why the doctrines of Christ. All these things enable Timothy and others to perform their duties whether they be apostles during the apostolic era or whether they be elders and deacons today or us in the pews, me up here, it enables us to live the life of humble obedience in faith, which no other man can do in and of himself. So what's Timothy to do? Well at the end of this epistle Paul exhorts Timothy preach the word the instant in season and out of season Repu- reprove rebuke exhort all long suffering and doctrine for the time is coming where they will not endure sound doctrine or to hold fast to it because good biblical doctrine is not fashionable to a sinful world Time is coming where they will not endure sound doctrine. So, brothers and sisters, are you do you cling to these gospel gospel truths? Christ the God man, the sinfulness of man, our utter bankruptcy and need of Jesus, his atoning work on the cross. All these things which are Confession. The Westminster Confession talks about. It asserts these things as essentials of the faith. There's nothing in our, our confessional standards that is something that our Westminster Divine Forefathers didn't think was something that was an essential element of faith. And that's why if you remove the scripture proofs and you just have our confession, it's a super tiny document. It fits in like, what, 40 pages of a little booklet like this? You have the scriptures written out, it becomes this huge, massive tome, which looks intimidating, but it really isn't that intimidating. Because our, our forefathers gave a summary of the faith. So that good thing, Paul continues, which was committed to you, So what is he talking about here? Well, Paul is doubling down. He's doubling down on God's word. That's something that's been committed to you. He's doubling down on the summary of faith. The summary of faith. So he's really wanting us to hold on to that which was committed, that good thing. And what is it? The person and work of Christ. His death, his resurrection, his high priestly work, all of these things, other grand and essential doctrines, like hell, something that uh, the, what the, the White Horse Inn doesn't necessarily seem to think is an essential doctrine. Michael Horton was talking about how Martin Luther King is a, a great sage of our era, and he talked about how there was this wonderful, wonderful sermon on sin, and, well, I had to read it. And in this sermon, Martin Luther King denies hell, which is a natural and supernatural consequence of our sinfulness. He denies that. He's not hold- so King himself is not holding on to the former pattern of sound words. But these things were given to Timothy. And he and his ministry is supposed to hold on to these things with a death grip. Because there are people who will challenge him, who will undermine him, and who will work against him. First, the Jews, they work to undermine him. Next, you're going to have uh, the Gnostics who denied that Jesus had a body. That's a huge deal. If he didn't have a body, he couldn't atone for men who have bodies. He had to be like us in every way. So this same pattern has been handed down to us today. We can see it in the Apostles' Creed, Nicene Creed, which we have in our hymnals. So take, to to take this away or to, to take away from this we cannot have the doctrines of Christ without the word. So we need to take the word of God as it is and understand it for what it says, how it presents itself. Even if it makes us uncomfortable. Because there are a lot of sections in there that might not make us comfortable. So the liberals undermine this. Evangelicals will discount it. But Christians will trust in the word no matter what. The other thing that we need to take away from this is is that the doctrines of Christ bring with it faith and love. It changes our affections. So for Charles Augustus Briggs, for example... It didn't really change him, and you can see it evident in the fact that he lies, cheats, steals to try and keep his income stream going in the mainline PC USA Church in the 1800s. Whenever you actually read all of the things that he wrote, you, you walk away with this feeling, "Is this guy an atheist? And he just wanted some high ivory tower position. Because in that time in that era, pastors were largely respected <clears throat> so if the doctrines of Christ don't bring with it faith and love, then it's not really the doctrines of christ it's just facts facts like you would have in an encyclopedia. so it changes our affections, it draws us to Christ, it draws our love to Christ and to his church <clears throat> Lastly, that good thing which was committed unto thee, keep by the Holy Ghost which dwells in us. <clears throat> so we're supposed to guard the doctrines of Christ, empowered by the Holy Spirit. <clears throat> So Timothy here, he's used to keep and guard it. He's been given this good thing. Good things come from God, right? So he used to guard, to use the, the Catholic phrase, the sacred deposit. We'll use it in the right way, though. That's been handed to him. That which he has received from Paul. The exposition of God's word from Paul. The summaries of faith. He's not to mix it. He's not to mix it with tradition. The tradition of the Jews, or any other man-made tradition. He's not to corrupt it with vain philosophy. No, he's to cherish it. It's to be something that's used and maintained. Think of, um, there's a scene in Lord of the Rings where you have Sam and Frodo climbing this rock side cliff face. Really fogging, it's really hard and arduous. And as Sam's climbing, his pack is shaking and out pops this box. It was originally buried in the middle of his pack, nice and safe. But as they're climbing, it worms its way out and it falls. He freaks out, he's like, Frodo, no, don't let that go. So Frodo catches it, he kind of slips down the rope and realizes that the fog that they had was covering the ground, they weren't that high up. But what was in there was salt from the shire. He had a piece of home, and that, that was something that was precious to Sam, and he was trying to guard it. And when it was threatened, he sought to protect it. Well, like Sam, Timothy is to guard that which he's received. And he to use what was given to him. But he's not alone in this. He's not to do these things, guarding and using, simply by human strength. Not by human will or effort. No. Christ sent us a helper. Because Christ knew that whenever he ascended into heaven, that he would not be present in body with us. So Christ's spirit is with us. And Timothy is to guard this sacred possession by prayerful reliance in the Holy Spirit in him. So, humanity is affected by sin, and because of this, not one aspect of man is free from it. It's like a, a drop of poison in a cup of water. It mixes thoroughly throughout. We, so we can't do anything that pleases God, let alone defend what he's given us on our own. So, brothers and sisters, whenever we study God's word, whenever we read and memorize catechism and study the confessions, we need to realize that it's by prayer, meditating, meditation, and prudence that we guard this form of sound words, this pattern of sound words. It's an active task today. So Briggs of it came and he went. He came, did a lot of damage to the church, was punished for it by being defrocked and he was kicked out. Forty years later, you come to the modernist fundamentalist controversy. And this controversy is coming to a head. And it comes to the head in a man named Machen who uh, was in the middle of his own trial at Presbyterian. You see, he had created a rival missionary agency to that of the one that the Presbyterian church had. The same church that Briggs have been kicked out of why because you had ministers and you had missionaries such as pearl buck preaching and teaching that it wasn't the christian's duty to proclaim the saving message of jesus it was to make the china the chinese better at being a chinese the Japanese to be better at Shinto and to be better Japanese. We're to spread this good, common, brotherly humanity. And that's not the gospel. That's not the form of sound words. It's not the pattern of sound words. The pre- and what is so unfortunate is, is that the procedural machinations that Brig failed to use, the liberals in the PCUSA, successfully used to defraud Machin. You have a faithful man who remained steadfast even in all that. When people would not endure sound doctrine, a sound pattern, a pattern of sound words was not among those people and didn't want to be. He kept faithful and he formed the OPC and he formed Westminster Seminary. And in the BP, we have a new missionary, or we have the missionary agency that that he formed. And these are all faithful institutions, or have been faithful in the past. So this is the lesson that Paul is teaching us here, brothers and sisters. In faith and life, no matter what, we are to cling firmly to the doctrines of Christ and remain faithful to it, no matter what. You'll bow your heads and pray with me. Heavenly Father, if you will remain standing and if you will open your hymnals to hymn number 300, You will be singing, Come Now, Long Expected Jesus.